0: Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. We're going to talk about perseverance. The first couple of points here we'll move through quickly, but we at least want to make sure we're all aware of the topic as it's branded with different phrases and words. So uh, the full phrase that you might be used to or even bring to mind when you see my shorthand under one word title, perseverance, uh, you might say, oh, that's what they call the perseverance of the saints, which has been popularized uh, in the codification of the five points of Calvinism, for instance, to talk about Uh, The saints that persevere, that's the pea and the tulip, if you're familiar with all that. And that is certainly an assertion that stands in contradistinction to the view that that's not the case. And what we mean by that, and of course it probably goes without any verbiage on the screen, but we're just saying with that phrase and the emphasis in that phrase is that Christians continue as Christians to the end of course we think in terms of temporal time to the end of their biological life but of course extends beyond that we're expecting them with this phrase to represent a reality into the next life that they will be eternally forgiven eternally accepted and eternally god's kids christians continue as christians to the end sometimes Uh, because a lot of people like to reword these points when they talk about the distinction between this kind of high view of God and and, and really sobering view of, of sin. They like to rename these for a number of reasons, but sometimes they're concerned about what it communicates to say, perseverance of the saints, as though the onus and all the responsibility lies on the Christian, which I'm not as sensitive to rename it this, but often you'll hear it stated these days as the perseverance of the Savior. In other words, this is the... The emphasis, at least in the way it's stated, is God is the one who ensures the Christian's continuance in the Christian life. And so, uh, to me, it's a little unnecessary to put it that way, but often you'll find it put that way. The perseverance of the Savior, that he deals with each saint, and in that, he's making sure that they finish to the end of the course. Also, you'll hear this under the category, or under the words, the verbiage, the nomenclature, eternal security, eternal security. And that kind of speaks for itself, but as long as we're putting things in yellow underneath it, what we're saying is that Christians are fixed, sealed, fixed in their forgiveness forever, that they are eternally secure, that if they are Christians, then they have no concern. Uh, that's an overstatement, as we'll see. But no, no fear that they will not be in God's grace at any point in the future of this life or the next and then the shorthand particularly the pejorative way it's often put one friend of mine often says oh you believe in once saved always saved and you hear that phrase tossed about and of course all that it's saying all the same thing but the emphasis there is uh, you believe that once a person is a christian he can't become a non-christian and if you've uh, grown up, as many people in Southern California have at the influence of Calvary Chapel, uh, most Calvary Chapel pastors do not believe in the perseverance of the saints uh, or eternal security. And they will usually refer to my view as once saved, always saved. And we'll look at the ways they like to extrapolate on that in this next section. That looks good. All those titles, you understand. All right. We all know what we're talking about here. Mischaracterizations of perseverance, I often find, and I'll just put these uh, down as false claims because sometimes I recognize I throw things out so often, so fast on Thursday nights, sometimes you have to stop and think, did he mean uh, that as an affirmed statement or one that he denies? And I just want to make it really clear, I'm denying this, but what they're saying is you say, you perseverance of the saints people, that all who profess Christ will be saved. And that is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that all who profess Christ will be saved. And as a lot of good Bible teachers have liked to put, sometimes in pithy, memorable statements, just because you profess Christ doesn't mean you possess Christ. That might be a good way to put it. But there are a lot of people that profess Him. As Paul said to Titus, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. And as I often say from this platform, as our moms used to say, actions speak louder than words, and we'll deal with that later. But false claim number one, are you saying that all who profess Christ are saved? And my answer is no, I'm not saying that. False claim number two, they'll say, oh, your doctrine, and I hear this often from my friends that don't believe in the uh, eternal security or the perseverance of the saints, they'll say, well, your doctrine ignores good works. See, our doctrine, because we want to make sure that people stay Christians, we're always focused on them obeying Christ. And you guys don't do that because you believe once saved, always saved. So you just tell them to you pray a prayer and walk an aisle and ask Jesus into their heart. These are all the terms you know I, I despise. But they say that's what I believe. And then they say, and then you got your ticket to heaven and that's it. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, good works and so they believe this is a doctrine that they believe will open groups up if they if they affirm this doctrine to never emphasizing at least not adequately in their minds good works and that's one of their major concerns but that's a false claim as I think you know if you're now understanding of course this is Mike's view this is our church's view our pastor's views here and you say well that's not the case at our church at all that's good observation and I suppose this one's related, but sometimes I hear it worded this way as people you know, attack us or debate us on this doctrine. They'll say, well, your doctrine is basically a license to sin. Uh, because if you believe that you're saved and once you're saved, you're always saved, then you can do whatever you want because you're not going to lose your salvation. If you're not going to lose your salvation, then people, are, are, they get it. They got a free pass. And, and they can do what they'd like. It's like having a sticker on your car that gets you out of every traffic ticket. And so you're going to drive however you want. If you know you're never going to get pulled over and never get a ticket. So that's what this doctrine does. It just basically gives you a license to sin. That's not what we're saying, as we'll show tonight. False claim number four. They'll often say, and I heard this recently, you know, you guys just have no accounting for apostasy. We'll say when someone defects from the faith, an apostate, we'll say they were saved and they lost their salvation. Now, you guys have no category for that. Well, we certainly do, but they will claim that. Once saved, always saved. Eternal security people, people who believe in the perseverance of the saints, you guys don't know what to do with those people that were once in your church, and then they leave, they profess Christ, and then they bail out. We've got a category for it. We say they've lost their salvation, and you, you, don't, you don't have a place for it. You can't account for the apostasy in your church. Not true. False claim number five. Oh, this doctrine excludes self-examination. There's passages in the Bible about searching yourself and asking God to try you, test yourself to see if you're the faith. All those passages, you guys don't, you don't worry about those because you believe once saved, always saved, eternal security, perseverance of the saints. That is a huge gaping hole in your sanctification because you're not constantly looking at your life and persevering in those things. And if you're not, recognizing that maybe you've lost your salvation, you need to get saved again. This is not just Calvary, by the way. This is the Nazarenes. There's a lot of groups out there that are teaching that you can be saved and then eventually not be saved. You can be a Christian and then you become a non-Christian. But these are the kinds of things that sometimes they'll lob over the wall and say, well, this is the problem and, and the issue with your doctrine. Good enough. You've heard. Smile at me if you've heard some of these before. You have, right? Okay. I told you we'd go through those quickly. Let's think through the doctrine of perseverance briefly, and then we'll expand it by the ways we look through various aspects of it. Let's put a definition down here, number one, and this is a definition, Mike's definition, but perhaps it will deal with some of the major elements of it. Phrase at a time. Real Christians, you hear me talk about that. I'm using the words I know that are most common to our discussions in the 21st century. You like the word Christian. Of course, the Bible doesn't use it very often. Three times in the New Testament and not always in a positive sense. Twice you could argue in a negative sense. But anyway, we talk in terms of saved as Christians. And what we're saying here is we're talking about a certain kind of Christian who would be a bona fide, real, genuine, converted, regenerate, justified person. So real Christians is what we have in view. And what we're saying in this doctrine, or what I'm asserting, is that they will necessarily continue. There's no ifs, no ands, no buts. They're going to, for necessary sure, they're going to continue in a couple things here. In faith with Christ, they will continue with faith in Christ. They will trust Christ five years from now, 15 years from now, 25 years from now, they will trust him, and this should throw a red flag for some of you, and producing fruit for Christ real Christians will necessarily continue with faith in Christ and producing fruit for Christ. And again, that's such a great word, by the way, fruit, just for the whole reality of regeneration. Something inside of me is different organically. It it affects how I act, how I function, how I speak. And that organic relationship between a new heart and new behavior, it's going to continue. Now, you're going to say, well, if that's the case, I'm looking around my small group and I'm seeing a guy here who's been a Christian five years and a guy who's been a Christian 25 years and it doesn't look like they're both bearing fruit at the same rate and I'm gonna say you're right. You could have a five-year-old Christian that seems to be outproducing in terms of their organic expression of Christianity coming from the inside out five times more than a 25-year-old Christian. And I'm just saying you may have a, you know, an 80-fold five-year-old and a 20-fold 25-year-old. I'm not saying everyone bears fruit at the same level. Uh, But I am saying they continue to bear fruit. Well, what about the person that you've talked about recently from the platform who is killed because of the discipline of the Lord? Ananias and Sapphira, assuming that they're saved, which I assume they are. The people there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Lord's Supper. Some among you are, are sick, are weak, and some have died. And I'm saying that is fruit of their relationship with Christ. Because Hebrews chapter 12 says that if you're without discipline, you're an illegitimate child. So the point is, and I often say this, I think I said this somewhere recently on some stage, I'm not sure if it's this one or not, but if you can continue in sin without discipline, that's the lack of fruit in your life. But if you sin and you don't repent and you're disciplined, that according to Hebrews 12 is evidence that you are a Christian. Even that is fruit. It's not the kind of fruit I want to bear in terms of God's parental discipline, but it certainly is evidence that I'm a real Christian. It's the problem I have is the person that gets away with sin without God's intervention. That That's a problem. So just like we would say, and we're pretty comfortable around here saying, as James would say, that your are your your fruit or your works they prove your faith how can you have an assertion of faith without fruits you're comfortable with that this is the same idea that your perseverance is going to prove your conversion but let's make this distinction before we go much further and that is and we're often accused of this but i saved it for this page perseverance does not cause conversion see they're saying well aren't you saying if persevering in the faith that's the that's the cause of your your salvation that's how you seem to be saying it, because the person who doesn't persevere, you're saying they're not a Christian, but if they persevere, they are a Christian. So I guess perseverance is the is the work that you do to receive the wages of salvation. And that's not what we're saying, as I'll show. Real Christians necessarily continue with faith in Christ, producing fruit for Christ. We're not saying perseverance causes conversion, but we are saying perseverance is proof of conversion, just like works is proof of faith, and that is the assertion we're making in the Bible. And finally, we'll get to some text on the screen. That took a long time tonight to get there, but I want you to see now very carefully the wording of these that in English share the same verbal tenses that they do in the original languages, which, of course, you would expect from a good translation, which your translations are. And so those tenses become very important, whether they're a perfect tense, past tense, perfect tense, completed tense. Those are very important as we look at verses like this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house. That was long discussion there in Genesis or Hebrews 3, not a long discussion, but an involved discussion about his his leadership. He's a son over the house of God's people, and we are his house. We're part of that clan. We're part of that family. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So if you continue with that confidence in Christ, with that boasting that he is your, your king, your Lord, you worship him, and he is your hope, well then then you are his house. Now, can you see the tense of that verb to be there in the second sentence in verse six? And we are his house if, there's the conditional phrase, indeed, we hold fast our confidence. So if you hold fast and continue with your confidence, it proves that you are his house. It doesn't say hold fast his confidence and have this hope and then you will be his house. It would read that way if we were saying letter B, perseverance causes conversion. But we're saying, no, it doesn't cause conversion. So it doesn't say we will be his house if we hold fast our confession. That's so important, and so many people miss that. You all smile at me if you caught that. You caught that. That idea is so critical, and you see it everywhere once you start looking for it later in the chapter, verse 14. It doesn't say we will share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm into the end. No, no, no. We have come to share in Christ. We have a part in the body of Christ, and we are a part of his family if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Now you can see that letter C summarizes that perfectly. Perseverance, continuing Christianity to the end, trusting in him firm until the end, is proof that we are right now, presently, Christians. It's not that we earn it. It's not that we become it. It's not that we somehow qualify for it. It's that we have these things, a share in his house, a part of Christ. We have those things. It's a completed action if, indeed, we hold our confidence firm to the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel preached to you, that you received in which you stand. Okay, so i got a gospel preached to me. I stand in it. I'm firm on it. Great. And by which you are being saved. No problem with that tense of being saved because we see that throughout the scripture. We're being saved from the present generation. We looked at that last time, past, present, future, salvation. The present phase of of that process that we go through in terms of the experience of salvation. We dealt with week three, I think it was, week four. That's the reality. But we stand in it. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, I pitted this at the beginning of the message against those who believe that you can be saved and lose your salvation versus those who believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, or the eternal security or perseverance of the saints. But there's a third category that clearly stands on letter B there, the inverse of letter B, and that is they believe that you earn your salvation, and we're not, I mean, we are dealing with those people, I suppose, when they come knocking on our door, but clearly that's not the case as you read these passages. We do not earn it. We don't get there because we persevere but we stand in salvation, this salvation that is saving us, if we hold fast, unless you believed in vain. And you can put quotation marks on that if you want, as we'll examine and and I'll show you as we move forward tonight. There is a kind of artificial faith. There is a kind of adherence to to the body of Christ, the visible church of Christ, that does not mean participation in possessing Christ. All right, one more. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He is now reconciled in his body, because he talks about the hostility we had from God, and now we're reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So his death provided peace with God. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if, there's our conditional clause, indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Those conditional phrases, if you look at those conditional phrases in Hebrews 3, 1 Corinthians 15, Colossians chapter 1, the idea begins to emerge that we understand that the persevering in our faith is the evidence of the reality of our conversion. And what is how is it described? Continuing in faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope that you've heard. Doesn't mean you're not going to have a bad day, as we'll see. It doesn't mean that you won't fall into sin from time to time. It just means... That there is a trend, as we said last week, not perfection, but a pattern. It's not that there's no sin, it's that there's a trajectory of sanctification. All right, now, let's elaborate on that a little bit, number four. God's guarantee of perseverance. That started with, as we've already seen a couple of times in our, sec- our session on election and predestination, and as we dealt even with the experience of salvation and a couple others we've mentioned it, God's decisions. A couple weeks ago, God made decisions in eternity past. Those decisions are the guarantee of our perseverance. Let's think through this in a couple of passages. First, he made the decision to save certain people, as we saw, John chapter one, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, which seems to put all the onus on us were responsible to respond, as in verse 10 and 11. They didn't respond. He came on his own. His own didn't receive him. But if we would respond to him, we would be now entitled to be children of God. Who were born, though, now he makes clear, the other side of the tapestry, we start to see that God is the one who initiates this, that my decisions to receive him, to put it in those terms from verses 10 and 11, uh, were contingent on his decision to save me, as he now says, who were born not by the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. So God made a decision. It's not two people deciding to have a baby. It's not me even deciding to choose God. Ultimately, that decision to choose God is predicated on and founded on his decision to choose me. And we've dealt with that in a whole hour and a half. But now we're saying, now think about that. God made the decision to save. And when he makes the decision to save, that would seem to guarantee the reality of that person being saved. In other words, We often talk, Wilson, Doug Wilson likes to put it this way in one of his books. If you want to ask who's saved when they're out there drowning in the water off, off the beach, and you say, well, who's saved? You'd really have to wait till you see who made it up on shore and who drowned. All I'm saying is, when it comes to the lifeguard getting off the tower and going out to save someone, that decision to save that person, if we understand who's making that decision, the decision and will of God, we know that when he goes out to save that person, he's going to save that person. No one is going to, as we saw in that section on irresistible grace, that, that effectual calling about, he's going to save those he chooses to save. So if he chooses to save, then we'd say the decision is guaranteed. That may not be real strong in your mind, and that's fine, but the Bible speaks more to the topic of he's going to complete it. God's decision to complete our salvation. He certainly has decided to do that, and he stated it in terms like this in John chapter 6. Just to take two passages that parallel each other, John chapter 6, verses 39 and 44. John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me. Now, there it is again, and we talked about decretive will. Remember that? And and his revealed will. The will that he wants to to prescribe and the one that he wants to accomplish. This is the one he wants to accomplish as he'll show. And this is the will of God, the decretive will of God, the decisive will of God of him who sent me, Jesus talking of the father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And the context talks about the father grants people to the son and the son is going to receive those and he's not going to lose any of them that he's given to me, and I'll raise it up on the last day. So that segment and swath of humanity that are given to him from the Father, because the Father has intended to save them, as the beginning of this book said, he's going to accomplish that. He will raise them up on the last day. Verse 44, he echoes this same sentiment. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, because it's his will to save. So he sends out his spirit to draw these people to himself, and the Bible says that when the father decides to swim out to save the drowning victim, they're going to be raised up and plucked out, and they're going to be laid on the shore, and they will be successfully saved. And you got a lot of people swimming out in the ocean, and you say, well, who's saved here? It's not just the people that say, I'm saved. It's the people that end up being saved. But we know this. If they really have, as we'll see, the encounter with the Savior offshore, then we know, you know what? They're going to be saved if it's real Christianity, because God has decided to save, and he has promised to complete it. Follow that, the idea there? Just like we see in those, and at least the echo of the principle that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Um, He'll continue it on until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter one. Not only did God make those decisions and that would be enough, but let's build on this and say, okay, more than making the decision to save someone, we would think he would be effective in saving those he chooses to save, and he promises that he will complete it, or at least he shows that he'll complete it. We can look at his promises that get very specific regarding those that he encounters offshore in the turbulent seas, if you will. I just like to put it this way, looking at that great chain in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. That those who are justified will be glorified. That's his promise. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And, and those whom he justified, he glorified. Those links in the chain... There's no wiggle room in that. If God has decided before the foundation of the world to save some, he will call them, to put it in words of John 6, he will draw them, he will then justify them, declare them righteous, and those that he's justified, not some of them, but those he justifies, he will glorify so that's all put, as I've often put, as I often say when I read this text, in the prophetic perfect, it's a completed action, uh, predestined, called, justified, glorified from God's perspective. This is all a done deal. When he starts out to do it, he promises to complete it. And just to see those two linked together, those he's also justified, he's glorified and that yet yeah, in our timeline hadn't, hadn't arrived yet. Promise of God. If you're justified and we've looked at the reality of that in our series, then you'll be glorified. He confirms the promise with an oath. Now, I'm not doing any fancy footwork here, as you'll see, I hope you'll see. The writer of Hebrews takes the promise that God makes to Abraham, and he makes that the paradigm for us in our salvation. So watch this carefully in in Hebrews chapter six. In Hebrews chapter six, God's Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, repeated in Genesis 15 and 17, the promise to him to be the avenue through which the Savior will come and save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, that intention of, of God through Abraham's descendant is one that he looks at as a case study and says, now look at how he made the promise. And he says, this all should apply to us. So he goes back and he describes it. When God made a promise to Abraham, Hebrews 6:13, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... Because people swear by someone greater than themselves. I swear on my mother. I swear on the Bible. I swear to God, the people say. Well, he can't swear to God. He is God. So since he had no one greater to swear by, uh, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless and multiply you. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to make a big point about this. He makes a promise, and then he swears an oath that he's going to do it. Verse 17, he brings us all in for landing to application to that first century group of Christians, which, of course, were a brotherhood in. We're a part of. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us. We're heirs of that promise. He blessed us through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, since he wants to show more convincingly. He would like to convince us of this absolute certainty of his promise. And we're going to be the heirs of that promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He's not going to change his mind on this. He guaranteed it with an oath. Now, All I'm saying is that paradigm of God promising to Abraham is supposed to now be something that relates to me and his promise to save because through Abraham's descendant, I am saved. So that by two unchangeable things, and what are the two unchangeable things so far in the passage? He made a promise, he confirmed it with an oath. The promise is enough, but he confirmed it with an oath. So he put a double layer on this that he didn't need to make so that by two things you can't change, once you promise and once you swear on oath, By those two unchangeable things, and he's about to add a third, in which it's impossible for God to lie. There's a third thing, if you want, is character. We who have fled for refuge, we now, Christians, first century people, now certainly applies to us, might have strong encouragement, confidence to hold fast to the hope set before us. So I can be confident that God is going to do what he promised to do in saving us, and I can hold fast to that hope and that equation of salvation. And I know that the deal is going to be accomplished because he's promised it and he's promised it on oath, which is unnecessary. But to show to us, the Bible says that he wants us to have strong encouragement. He's made a promise and he has confirmed it on oath. Letter C, back of the page. God's trustworthiness. This should go without saying, but I think it is helpful for us to look at our lives and say, God has made a promise. He said, if you would respond to the gospel. As we'll see in more detail and I'll outline all that. But if you say, okay, that's the deal. Am I saved if I've responded to the gospel? We'll look at some things that surround all that. You know, could this not work out somehow? Well, I suppose there's some ways that it wouldn't work out, but it would be on our end, not on his end. And part of the reason is because he's holy. Because he's holy, perfect, set apart, becomes the standard for all morality and ethics. The Bible would make clear one of the expressions of his holiness is he's a truth teller. He can't lie. I love the way this is put here, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, who can't lie, promised before the ages began. So here's a promise. It's held out to people. And that promise is one that is, as we've seen, is going to save those that he has purpose to save, and the Bible says there's nothing in his character that would allow us to question the veracity of his promise. God is holy, he cannot lie. Number two, God is omniscient. He can't forget as though you needed this, but sometimes people will say God may have made a promise, but the critics would say, who knows? I don't think the people at the church down the street are going to think this, but the critics in Second Peter chapter 3 thought it, and they thought, maybe God's not going to keep his promises because it's an old promise. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is, is, is as a thousand years. I can't remember what I did ten years ago, let alone sometimes ten days ago. That's because I'm finite. I'm not omniscient. God makes promises, and if he made it a thousand years ago, it's like he made it yesterday. It's like one day. This is not, by the way, the key to some prophetic map that you're reading. This is just God doesn't have the problem that we have with time. Because he's omniscient. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. some count slowness. And I guess you could get so cynical and skeptical about God's promise to save people, because our world gets worse and worse, to think maybe this promise isn't going to hold true and God's walked away from us or the universe or this generation. But that's not the case, because God is omniscient. God is immutable. He cannot change. Which, from a biblical narrative perspective, you watch him make promises to people, and you think... Why would you keep that because this guy's life doesn't look like it deserves it? Or why would Israel be blessed up to this certain point in time as we've been reading 586 BC as we've watched the deterioration of the southern kingdom in our daily Bible reading? Why, why would he keep those promises? Why would he continue the line of Levitical kings through David's offspring? So many of them seem lousy. Why would God keep those promises? And the Bible makes the point because he, he, he makes promises and he, does, he, can't, he doesn't change. This is the point made in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You would be consumed as a nation because of your sin. But yet, in this book, you've reassembled after the Babylonian exile. And I'm doing this and fulfilling my promise because I made a promise. And I'm not going to change my promise. God is omniscient. He's certainly not surprised. He makes a promise. He doesn't change Numbers chapter 23, verses 19 and 20, which is an interesting exchange between Balaam, the rent-a-prophet, and Balak, the king, who has Israel marching through his, his territory, and he wants Balaam to curse Israel. You know the story. We always think of the donkey. That's not the real point obviously it is for a flannel graph story i suppose but numbers 23 19 he says god is not a man interesting that this prophet speaks so much truth in this section including by the way a messianic prophecy which we don't have time to look at but in numbers so many good things come through balaam's mouth and a couple good things through his donkey's mouth god is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind has he spoken and he will not do it of course Has he spoken? He will not fulfill it. Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed. I can't revoke it. God has made decisions. If he has justified, he will glorify. If he's justified you in time, think about that. He's declared you righteous. He's blessed you. He can't revoke it. It won't be revoked. That's the point of the concept of the trustworthiness of God based on his character. He's a God who's holy, he's a God who's omniscient, he's a God who is immutable. Those principles are throughout the Bible, there's a couple of passages. We study these things in the Partner's Manual, chapter 2, some of these, but all of them come to bear on the promise of salvation. God is omnipotent, he can't fail. And you'd think, well, that seems like a silly thing to underscore, and yet Jesus does it for us when we think about our salvation, when he describes it in John 10. After that discussion of being the great shepherd, he says this, John 10, verse 28 through 30, I give them eternal life, they'll never perish. Even that should be enough of the golden chain. I justify, I glorify. I give them eternal life. If you've been given it, he doesn't take it back. They're never going to perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The point is nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, to quote Romans 8. My father who has given them to me. Now, you might be looking at this man giving this discussion and think, well, he didn't seem very powerful. So he makes this concession, this condescension. He doesn't need to do it, but he does it. And he's about to reverse it, I suppose, in verse 30 to say you should know better. But my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I, am my father. I and the Father are one in terms of power. That's the statement there, the omnipotence of the Son and his ability to grasp his people that he holds as the good shepherd. It's just like the Father who is also called the good shepherd in Psalm 23. Uh, no one's going to let go in the triunity of God, of the people of God. He's omnipotent. His promise to save us can't fail. There's no wave out there. As he goes out to save us, if we're now taken by Christ in this salvation process, we will reach the shore and we will be saved. God is omnipotent. All right. Letter D. This is the one I can never find the people, when I discuss this with people, who don't believe in the perseverance of the saints, I've never heard a good answer for it all. God's guarantee. Specifically, all I want to do is bullet point this. His indwelling spirit. There is so much in the Bible about this. And it's funny that so many charismatics or quasi charismatics, certainly Pentecostals, who believe that you can lose your salvation are so focused on pneumatology and the reception of the spirit. They'll claim all kinds of existential experience with the Holy Spirit. And then they'll claim, well, you can have it and then you can, you can lose it. Not just your connection with the spirit, but your connection with God altogether. And I'm thinking, well, you should read the Bible perhaps and find out that that just doesn't make any biblical sense at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. 2 Corinthians one twenty through 22. This, by the way, you might remember, the end of chapter... 16 in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a promise to visit the Corinthians. Those plans get messed up, so he has to make this discussion in chapter 1 by saying, I planned to come, it didn't work out. Am I making decisions like everyone else? No, I'm not. God had a plan, He redirected it. All of that he's trying to explain. Well, then he crescendos into this doctrinal statement about God's promises, which are a lot different than our promises. All the promises of God find their yes in Him, and the contextual antecedent to that is Christ, in Christ. That is why it is through Christ that we can utter our amen to God for his glory. Remember what amen means. Do you remember what amen means? It's one of those words we've transliterated like apostle, apostolos, baptism, baptizo. Amen is you're just uttering a Greek word. Actually, it comes all the way back to Hebrew. But I like to say, I don't even know if I've codified this in the partner's manual, but I think a good idiom in our language is right on. That's really what it means. Amen means right on. That's right. And in some churches, when you preach, I'll hear that. They'll say, That's right. That's right, preacher. I'll hear that. That's great. So that's what Amen means. So here's Paul saying, Listen, God makes a promise, and when he makes those promises, because of Christ's completed work, his death, burial, resurrection, we can know for certain, looking to him, that all of his promises find their their fulfillment in him, their their yes in him, their completion. That's why we can utter, right on, it's gonna happen. It's the real deal. It's it's yes. We can, we can utter that amen, that antiphonal yes to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And he has anointed us, which is a rich metaphor in the Old Testament of setting apart the king or the prophet or the priest. All three of those were anointed in the Old Testament for God, separating them, sanctifying them, setting them apart, and who has also put his seal on us. Now remember what the seal was. You would have that wax and you would seal it. That's the picture. We studied that in our pneumatology semester. That picture of the spirit is that seal. That's the thing that closes it, seals it up, envelops it like an envelope, and that is the done deal. He's wrapped it up with a bow. How has he done that? He's put a seal on us, giving us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So I'm in Christ. Christ has made a promise to me. He's given me his spirit. And the spirit in this text is said to be the absolute final completion of my guarantee. It's the down payment. It's the thing. It's the surety. It's the thing I know he's, he's going he's to save me. He's given me this. And if he's given me this, he's going to give me the rest of it. I've been justified. I'm going to be glorified. I don't see any way around that. Especially for those, like I say, that are the you know the semi-charismatics that say, "Well, we can lose our salvation, but I'm, I got the Spirit in me, but I may not have it next year." God, I mean, I'd be a Christian next year if I'm not careful. You can't deal with these passages and come to that conclusion. Here's another one: Ephesians chapter one, verses thirteen and fourteen. Ephesians chapter one, verses thirteen and fourteen. In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were. Here it is again, as a verb, you were sealed. His seal, that was the noun back there in 2 Corinthians 1, but now he sealed you, he stamped you with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the surety, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We will have the inheritance that was promised us. Why? If we have the Spirit. One more, 2 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. Speaking of the fact that we'd rather be absent from the body, this tent in which we live and we'd rather be in his presence, but when we are there, and we put away this earthly tent, what's mortal is going to be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So I now, living in this body, in the context, away from Christ, in the tent of this body, long-distance relationship, proxy, if you will, through the Spirit, I now long to be with Christ, which he says, he's, he's prepared this new home for me. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to have this new reality, and the guarantee of it is, this is the Spirit. So if you have the spirit of God at any point in your Christian life, that, the Bible says it's a, it's a done deal. It's God's guarantee. So God has purposed something in a decision that he made. He has carried it out in real time and that you have a, a testimony of some kind and, and then you know he's promised to complete it. His character is one that he doesn't take these things back. He doesn't forget it. He's not overpowered. He's not in some way changing his mind. And then in real time, I have some encounter with the spirit here where he, he comes to dwell in me and the Bible says, that's it. That's it. There's the guarantee. You should have no doubt that he will bring to completion the thing that he started. I can't find a way out of that. That's why I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Some of the reasons people question it are because of these obscuring factors. Number five, the obscuring factors regarding perseverance. Why is this hard for some people to see? Here's why. Letter A, unconverted churchgoers. And there are a lot of them. I know that personally. (laughs) Uh, Usually in the rearview mirror, sometimes through the windshield, but usually through the rearview mirror. There are a lot of people going to church that are not saved. As some would frame it in some circles, there's the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church, that's everyone who sits here, takes communion together like we will this weekend. Uh, They all assemble and cheer people to get baptized. We have the word ministered to us week in and week out. That's the visible church. Those are the churchgoers. But then there's the real church, as we often say. I shouldn't say it as often as we do, perhaps. But looking at the headlines and we think about the future of the church in America, if and when persecution breaks out in our lifetime, real persecution, it will begin to sift and separate. The churchgoers from the real Christians, will it not? It'll separate the men from the boys, as we say. It will distinguish for us with clarity the invisible church and the visible church, because the invisible church will start to get more visible, because we'll recognize that real Christians aren't going to continue to associate with the church if it costs them something. But real Christians cannot do otherwise. So we know we've got, especially in peacetime, a big, as I also say, with things I say behind your back, a big layer of fat in the church because in peacetime, you're always going to have that. People that associate and glom to the church for one reason or another, but they're not converted. There's lots of places we could go in the Bible for this, and I know this is small print, but I want to put the whole passage, but I didn't have room for it. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable of the kingdom of heaven. The people that we have to deal with in this life are going to be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. You know this illustration, don't you? While his men were sleeping, the enemy came in. Now, I can prove this to you, I suppose even if you just read this text, but the servants of the king are like the leaders in the church, the pastors, the teachers. They've gone out like Apollos and Paul and Cephas, and they've seen people come to Christ. They've planted churches. Now, when they weren't noticing it, sleeping in this illustration, the enemy came in and planted, sowed weeds among the wheat, and then went away just like Paul warned the Ephesian elders as he left them in the book of Acts. There's going to be people from within you that are going to grow up to pull and draw people away. And he was saying this with tears to them because there's going to be destruction in the church and it's going to come from within. So that when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. So I got a feel, I was hoping to see waves of grain, amber waves of grain, to quote our, one of our songs. And unfortunately it's all dotted with weeds. They asked, the servants asked, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, the master, do you want us then to go and gather them? Which we often, yeah, I'd like that. Let's sort them out, man. He said, no, less than gathering the weeds, you could uproot the weed along with them. You might be throwing that guy out of your home fellowship group that's bearing 20-fold fruit after 25 years and yanking that guy out because you're comparing him to the, you know, the the 80-fold fruit bearer that's a five-year-old Christian. We don't want to do that. So no, that's not how we're going to operate. Verse 30: Let both grow up together until the harvest. See, we're not we're not checking people at the door in terms of you have the valid kinds of fruit that we're looking for. Now, if you're in egregious unrepentant sin, of course, we're going to discipline you and tell you you can't be here anymore. Excommunication, if you'd like to use that heavy word. But when it comes to people sitting around and going, well, I doubt that guy's even saved, that doesn't mean I'm going to sit there and, and, and get our pastors together to rip you out of the church. The Bible says, no, let them grow up together until the harvest because there'll be a time when there'll be an exact scientific separation of the, of the weed and the tares. Let them grow up together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, which he describes in a parallel passage as the angelic beings, to gather the weeds first, because they're good at it, not the servants. We're not as good at it as the the heavenly perspective. And first bind them into bundles and burn them. And then you can gather the weed into my barn. That's a picture of the lake of fire and the kingdom of heaven, the gates of the new Jerusalem. And they're going to be separated, as it says elsewhere, like a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. In the meantime, we got a pen of sheep here with some goats among us. What's the percentage? Don't know. Don't make me try to guess. But I can tell you the percentage would be a lot less if you knew coming here, the secret police were taking your name down, and you might incur all kinds of persecution for it, and you could have your family arrested, or you might lose your job. I think our night would be smaller than it already is. And I think it would certainly start to show the distinction between the invisible and the visible church. Not that I, I shouldn't think about that as much as I do, but there are a lot of unconverted churchgoers. Now, we're doing the best to preach the word, and a lot of times that sifts a lot of people out, but we cannot actively go about as police in, in, in the regard that this text is presenting it and say, okay, we, don't, we think you're a phony Christian, but there are a lot of unconverted. So what does that do? That muddies the water when it comes to the perseverance of the saints. It gets worse. There's a lot of non-Christian Christian leaders. I guess you could put the second word Christian in or in quotation mark, can you not? <laughs> These are non-Christian, quote-unquote, Christian Leaders, non-Christian, quote Christian, unquote leaders. They're not really Christians, but they're leading in the church. Can you think of any? Don't look at me. <laughs> but you can think of some, can you not? Hopefully not on our staff, but you know some folks that stand up with Bibles in hand, who most people in our world think are Christians. All you do is look at my Twitter feed. Look at my Twitter feed, and of course, all the people that end up following my Twitter feed—they, a lot of Christians and a lot of Paul, politically minded people too. But anyway, they befriend me on Twitter. They follow me on Twitter. And I, I look at their stuff and I watch the people they quote. And I watch the ministries they promote. And I'm like, oh, 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 sometimes groaning audibly when I see what I see. Because I know that these people have denied the master they claim to represent. I mean, they're, they're out in left field. Peter said, this is the way it's going to be. But the false prophets also arose among the people, past tense, Old Testament. There were a lot of false prophets. You just got done reading Jeremiah with me in the DBR, did you not? So much about the false prophets. They claim to speak for God. They're not, they're not God's prophets. They don't speak for God. They're making things up in their mind. They're having their dreams, and they're not speaking the word of God faithfully. It's going to be in, the same, in this, this dispensation the new covenant era, just as there will be false teachers among you. And they will scream and, and, and blow horns and, and shine lights when they enter your churches. No, they'll secretly bring in destructive heresies, things that are not orthodox, things that are not biblical, even denying the master who, you can put this one in quotes too, bought them. Now they're claiming to be bought, blood bought Christians, right? Redeemed, child of the Lamb. They, they claim all of that in their radio programs and TV shows and, and best selling Christian books. But they deny them, do they not? By the things that they teach. In those heresies that they introduce to the church. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality. There's a sign of the way they deny their master. Because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And it happens all the time. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. It just hadn't dawned on them yet. But it's coming, and it will come quickly, just like our redemption will come quickly as the judge stands at the door. And at any point he could walk through the threshold, their destruction is going to come upon them. That's not a picture of a Christian person, is it? Someone who's going to incur the destruction of God. And yet they are leading in churches, teaching from Bibles, writing best-selling Christian books. They might be in some very important, heavy denominational leadership in, in this country. I think of one who, who climbed to the highest heights of Christian leadership. His name was Judas. You've heard of him? Think about that. We have non-Christian Christian Christian leaders. That makes this whole thing about discerning Christians who persevere to the end, it makes it real hard. Because how many of the famous Christians right now that are leading, especially on Christian television it seems, how many of them will even claim to be Christians 25 years from now? When they're scams, a lot of the scams are uncovered, they're done. They're done. I've known several of them. I've talked to some of them personally. I could tell you stories, but not on tape about my encounters with some of these people. I've already told you one you talked me into telling you about my trip to the Anaheim Convention Center. I don't know how you got that out of me. (laughs) Well, then this is the next natural step and shoe to fall. Oh, you got non-Christian Christian Christian leaders. They must be producing people who have an assurance of relationship with God that they don't really have. Yes, you're right, because they're teaching a false gospel. What they're presenting to people is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has that label on it, but it's not the gospel. So we got a problem. We are producing, as Jesus said of the Pharisees in the first century, followers who are doubly the sons of hell as their leaders are. How's that? Because a lot of the shysters know what they're doing, even though they're doing it as deceivers. But then their followers are often deceived. I mean, how blind do you... It's one thing to be a shyster, and I've met some of them, who know that they're con men. But what about the people that follow them sincerely? They're doubly sons of hell because they're blindfolded completely. This is a terrible thing. And the Bible has warned us. You've got to be careful for the good news, quote-unquote, that's going out there that's not really the good news. And, of course, the whole book of Galatians is dealing with that problem. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Galatians 1, eight. but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, of course, that's hyperbole because Michael isn't going to come and preach a false gospel. But the point is, it doesn't matter who he is. What's that trying to set people up for? It could be someone really important. And even in the, in, in the discussion right out of the gate, he starts to talk about Peter, who's now starting to say things he shouldn't say. And this guy's a pillar of, of the disciples. I mean, he's an apostle. He was the, the senior pastor of church at, at, at Jerusalem, and he's going, even he was moving, and he got Barnabas swept up into it. We read that, I think, last time we were together. What's the point here? You got to be careful. Sometimes there's real Christians like Peter saying things they shouldn't say, leading people astray, and oftentimes you'll have the people, as it says in Second Timothy, who are deceivers, and then there are those that are deceived because of their ministries and their bad news. So a false gospel, it's out there. Surely people like this have been followers and recipients of a false gospel. We quote it all the time, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Sounds like a pretty religious guy. Cast out demons in your name? Sounds like a real religious do-gooder. Do many mighty works in your name? Sounds like a very dramatically expressive Christian. Yeah, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So they seem to be the kinds of people that are following the false teachers And they're fully deceived. They're there willing to argue. Now, I don't think a lot of the shysters that we dealt with in letter B are going to be standing there saying, well, I don't understand why I'm not getting in the kingdom. But their followers certainly are. Do you follow what I'm saying there? The shysters know if they meet; they die, they're expecting nothing, most of them, I assume. And yet they'll meet the living God and they will grovel. But this picture Matthew 7, you got a lot of people that imbibe on a false gospel and they think they're in and they're not. That's the problem. Part of the obscuring factor. Of course, then there's just cultural Christianity. I'll bet your neighbor, if you ask them, you're going to heaven when you die, what would your neighbor say? Yes. Unless your neighbor is a regenerate Christian, of course, the Bible says very clearly they're not. And so here we have, even in Orange County, a cultural Christianity that gets a lot of people thinking they're right with God and they're okay. They would even call themselves Christians on the Barna surveys or the Pew Research surveys, but they're not. And so that kind of cultural Christianity makes it hard to sort out the real from the unreal, at least in people's mind, or they see a lot of people that claim to be real that do things that don't measure up. That's why there are statements like this throughout the Bible in one form or another. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse five. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse five. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Now, why would I need to do that? He's writing to a church. Same reason I would have to stand up here and do that. You think I do it too much, but I don't think anybody's gonna say that a hundred years from now when I say, we ought to test ourselves to see if we're really Christians. Test yourselves. He says it twice. Examine yourself, test yourself. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? How's that? Through the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee and seal and the pledge and the promise and the down payment of our salvation, unless indeed you, you fail to meet the test. So you ought to test yourself. Just because you're in church doesn't mean you're really saved, which all leads to this. What's the deal with all the defectors? Because that's where the person that says, oh, Johnny was a Christian and now he's not a Christian... He says, well, you can't be into this once saved, always saved, eternal security, perseverance of the saints stuff, because I know all kinds of people that used to be Christians and aren't Christians. How do we deal with apostasy? Well, number one, we start by recognizing we see a lot of it in the Bible. We see a lot of people who defect, who are called disciples. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 66. I just put the two bookend verses up for you, 60 and 66. He's saying some hard things about who he is, and he's using analogies that are way out there that are max." maximum kinds of effects in terms of the integration of Christ in these people. You know the context, or if you don't look it up, but many when they heard this said, man, that's a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now you've gone too far, it's too much. Bottom of that discussion says, and after this, after that whole discussion, when he, when he asks, are you offended? And, you know, and he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. He says this, John says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There's a picture of defection. There's a picture of I'm not, I'm not in this anymore. Now what's with that? Well, according to the parable of the soils, and I just give you the two middle soils because you have no problem discerning the first soil and the last soil. The soil along the path, here's the message, and they don't care about it. They don't embrace it at all. The bird comes up, who's the enemy, snatches it away, and off they go. And you say, there's a non-Christian for sure. And then at the other end, there's Christians that bear fruit some 30, 60, 100 fold. And so we know those guys are saved. But what's with these two middle ones? Verse 20 through 22. Matthew thirteen twenty through 22. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Now, anytime you have a crusade at the, uh, you know, Angel Stadium or you have, you know, some big thing where someone's doing a concert and they're having people come forward. When someone comes and receives the message with joy, you high five them, give them a Bible, give them some verses of assurance because now they're saved. Welcome, brother. Let's get you baptized next week. That is the response of most people when people receive the word with joy. Now, we could cross our arms and have some big lie detector test, and we could go through all that, but then we go back to the tares and the wheat, and we start saying, I don't think that's the right response. What's the right response? Somewhere in between those two. Because the problem is, these people don't have any root in themselves, but they endure only for a while. They don't persevere to the end. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, suddenly, they're gone. They fall away. See it all the time. 30 years... As a, as a senior pastor in ministry, I, I see it all the time, and this is a heartbreaking thing, and it makes me a little skeptical, unfortunately, more than I should be, I suppose, but you recognize there are a lot of people that immediately love this thing called the gospel, and they're in it, and they're in it for a while, and then something comes up, they realize what it costs them, and you start to reveal their motives. Some just want a following, some just want to be a, you know, a big shot, or some people just want an existential experience, or whatever they want, and they realize that's not what it's going to pan out to be and so they're gone. As for those that were sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now the thing about Christians is you'll know them by their fruit. You have two middle soils that are described as responding positively to the gospel, but they they both prove to be unfruitful and the point of the, of the message throughout Christ's ministry is if they don't bear fruit, Fruit that remains. Well, they're not. They're not Christians. Couldn't be any clearer than First John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Antichrist is coming. Wow. Yeah, now that could be with a definite article in front of it. The Antichrist, capital A. There's certainly that picture in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in the book of First Thessalonians. But he says, now there are many little antichrists, small a, that have come. And we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Sounds like a tongue twister, but you understand what's being said. Verse 19, they went out from us. A lot of people there that are now against this that used to be for it. And I can introduce you to a long list of them. In youth ministry, it happens all the time. Even the best youth ministries, and I think we have one of the best, we see it all the time. They have fill out their, they have their yearbook, and they say great things about God. And then five years later, where are half of them? If you ask them about their relationship with God, many of them will blaspheme God. What's with that? Well, they're antichrist. Well, what happened? I guess they lost their salvation. That's what mommy wants to think. Or some people, on the other hand, mom will want to think, well, once saved, always saved. They're just in a really long backslidden state. Neither of those are possibilities if you look at the biblical data. We're at a situation where we look at the scripture that says, look at the defection, the apostasy, which proves that if they had been of us, they would have continued with us because that's what the reality of Hebrews chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, we looked at those passages, you're going to remain with him to the end, but that defection shows they weren't really with us. They went out to make it plain that they're not all of us. Because what's 1 what's John all about? That very thing. If you claim to be in Christ, you're going to walk with Christ. Apostasy and defectors. Let's talk through this assurance. That's probably one of the most important points. Maybe I should have summed it up a little bit better. But when you say, what do you do with my kid who grew up in church, read the verses, said the verses, active in the youth group, wrote wonderful things in his yearbook for the youth group, that he loved God, wanted to serve God, and now he couldn't give a rip about God, doesn't go to church, doesn't care, denies Christ. They're not saved and lost their salvation. The text makes clear that these are people that defect to show the reality of which soil they were a part of. They may have received the word with joy, they may have defected quickly, or they might have, like the, the thorny soil, they might have choked themselves out of this thing slowly because the priorities and reality of their faith was non-existent. The experience, though, of assurance. This is important. Well, with all that said, who can be sure? Well, assurance is the expectation in Scripture. First John chapter 5, verse 13, you know I'd quote this at some point, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now think about that. John really puts the fear of God in us by the third chapter of his little epistle and says, man... We know that if we have God and his seed abides in us, we can't remain in sin. So we're going to be radically changed. And now at the end of the book, you're saying you write these things so that we can know? You want us to know? You think we can know? Yeah, all biblical authors want us to know. And the ultimate biblical author, God himself, wants us to know. He says things like this to us through the pen of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. That's some kind of experience as we looked at in that, in that one lecture in this series. We have that experience of conversion. We have that connection, and we'll look at further in this section, of the Spirit's change in our lives. So we have something called a testimony. And look, it has made us to be born again to a living hope. This is not a hope, across your fingers hope. This is an abiding, thriving confidence. That's the biblical concept of hope, that I have a confidence, that living hope. And I know it because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I've got an inheritance that's not going to perish. It's not going to be defiled. It's not going to fade away. It's kept in heaven for me, who by the power of God, is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. There's a kind of statement that gives us a sense that God would expect us to have that kind of confidence about our salvation. That is the expectation. So let's think about that. If I'm supposed to test myself to see if I'm of the faith, what kind of test should I apply to myself? Well, I need to start with a doctrinal test. Of course, doctrine means teaching. The teaching of the Bible and the one that determines whether I'm a Christian or not a Christian is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I've got to think through the biblical gospel and I got to think through my life in relation to the gospel. And the first thing I need to figure out is, have I had exposure to the biblical gospel? Have I just heard somebody tell me to pray a prayer, throw a pine cone in a fire, walk an aisle, raise a hand, get a track, sign sign the last page of the book? What have I been told to do? Is it the biblical gospel? Have I encountered the biblical gospel? Timothy was told to guard the deposit entrusted to you. He says that, Paul does in 1 Timothy 6 and in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he has this teaching given to him as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It was coming from Paul to him and it was supposed to be entrusted to faithful men, but that message was supposed to be carefully guarded, guard the deposit, avoid the other stuff, the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called gnosis, knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So there's people out there, false teachers, people that are not biblical And he says, you've got the biblical message, guard it. Now, in my encounter with it, I want to make sure that I've encountered it. Because according to Romans chapter 10, if I call on the name of the Lord, I'm going to be saved. But the kind of salvation and the kind of calling that the Bible speaks of, how am I going to call on him if I've not believed? And how am I going to believe on him if I haven't heard? And how am I going to hear it unless someone preaches it to me? The point of the messenger, like Timothy, as a preacher of this message, so important. Have you been exposed to the biblical gospel? This is why one of the best things you can do for non-Christians, almost every time I get in a serious conversation with a non-Christian, my goal is to give them a Bible and make them read it. I mean, I, I want to be clear that they're getting as best they can the message of the gospel. And as you, some of you have heard me uh, talk about my evangelistic method, but just getting people to get the book of, of, of Luke. That's I love Luke. I've always loved Luke as an evangelistic book. And most people talk about John. But just take the gospel of Luke. I mean, start in chapter 9, I usually say, read to the end of the book, chapter 24, go back to chapter 1, read again to chapter 24, just read that one gospel and get the clear message of Christ's own words into your brain so that you understand you're getting that message. Now, I can summarize it for you, I can put an umbrella down on a napkin and show you the way that the Bible kind of describes this systematically, but I want you to encounter the biblical gospel. And I got to look back in my life and say, did I encounter the biblical gospel? I got bits and pieces of it when I was growing up. But it took a long time for me to figure this out clearly as God made this super clear to me. Many times it takes us lots of encounters with the biblical gospel. But let's make sure what we're dealing with is the biblical gospel. Then we've got to look at my life and say, hey, have I responded biblically to the biblical gospel? Now, again, there's lots of things involved in the indicatives of the gospel. But the imperatives of the gospel are repentance and faith. There's a lot of things about who Christ is, what sin is, who God is, but then when it gets down to it, I want to look at the imperatives. Have I encountered these imperatives and responded accordingly? Acts chapter 20, verse 21, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Repeatedly, over and over in the Bible, two imperative verbs, metanoia, which is repentance, and pistuo, Metanoao, to make it a, noun, a verb, and pistuo, pistis, the noun. Those two words... Over and over again is the call to you and I to respond to the gospel. Have I done it? Or have I just prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, signed a booklet? Those are different things. And just to throw a couple of the verses out there, just to be complete, I suppose. I mean, to be complete would be to quote a lot more. But just to give you more on this, Acts 26:18. this idea of a strepho turning. This, this is the illustrative way to describe repentance. that They may turn from darkness to light. I know that's an analogy, but from the power of Satan to God, that turning, they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are set apart, sanctified by faith in me. I want to make sure that that's been a reality of repentance in my life. And I want to make sure, as James chapter 2 verse 19 says, that my faith is not reduced in some kind of reductionistic way to just saying, I believe the facts, I assent to the facts. It's not about that. The demons assent to the facts. James chapter 2 verse 19 says, repentance and faith. Have I had that? Let me add another one for you, which may surprise you, but I do think when it comes to the issue of assurance, I got to look at my my resolve, my heart's resolve, the sincerity of my turning not just to Christ but to the message of of the Bible, of the truth. I call it a biblical resolve regarding the truth. Look at this text. This is the re- the reason I worded it that way was because this text I I thought when it comes to assurance, this text has to be a part of it. Thanks be to God. Here's Paul, who's very confident, obviously, in his own conversion. He has assurance that he is elect. Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. It's like that deposit was given, not just to the pastors, but through those pastors, and in this case, the apostles, to the people. Here's the corpus of truth. Now, he's saying when you were saved and you stopped being a slave to sin and a slave to God... You responded. Look at the words again. You were obedient to, from the heart, sincerity, to the standard of teaching, to this measure, this canon, this this measure of teaching, this benchmark of teaching to which you were committed. We gave this to you. That's kind of a subjective, personal way to describe how I repented and how I put my trust in Christ and how I connected myself to the truth. It's more than just having that, receiving the word with joy, but it's the depth of that. And having been set free from sin, we became... And have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says, You guys ought to be confident in your faith if this describes you, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So, the doctrinal test is how I dealt with the doctrine. First, was I exposed to the biblical doctrine of the gospel? Did I respond biblically to the gospel, particularly the two imperatives of the gospel? And then, what kind of heart connection did I even have with that at the point of my conversion? And then this one, which of course you would expect, the transformation test. I got a doctrinal test, then I got to look at my life and the transformation test. Number one, let's put it this way, this is a bad word I know and how it's used in some ways today in certain industries, but a testimony of being repurposed. I probably could have picked a better word, repurposed. And I think of this passage, Second Corinthians chapter 5, that certainly gives us a great summary of that idea of being repurposed. Re- re- I got a new purpose now. 2 Corinthians 5:15, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live, here's the purpose clause, for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Many of you have heard a sermon that went out thousands and thousands of times over, heard more response to that little sermon I did without very much prep at all called, But I've Always Been a Christian. Smile at me if you've heard that sermon. You've heard that? But I've Always Been a Christian. That concept of I've Always Been a Christian is the reason I titled that, and I was called in the last minute to preach that sermon that day, that night, was because I hear I heard that all the time. Oh, I've always been a Christian. I still hear it. I heard it two weeks ago. Someone told me that. Always been a Christian. I said, when did you become a Christian? I've always been a Christian. Some people will say that if they grew up like I did in a church setting. Church setting, I don't have the testimony like most Southern California pastors. I can't give you anything like heroin shooting or robbing banks or whatever. I don't have that story. But I'll tell you, I don't care how clean and culturally acceptable your background story is, this repurposing of your life is a radical change. Don't tell me you've always been purposed to live for the living God. You just haven't. There's no possible way. You're born like every other ball of of flesh, wanting nothing but you to be happy. You, You have to turn that around. You have to see that testimony. I put it in that passive sense. You need to have a testimony of being repurposed. It's something that happens to you by the indwelling of the Spirit. Secondly, you need a testimony of being redirected, which two verses later would be a good way to go. We could go to other passages, but it's right there in the context. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, I've been placed in Christ. There's the sense of the passive nature of this. Then I've, I've been redirected. He's a new creation. And then what grows out of that? Well, the old passes away and behold, the new has come. So I have now a redirected life. I've been repurposed in the core of who I am. What do I live for? As an honest Christian, I live for me and whoever else I like that might help me in life. But then I become a Christian, and I'm repurposed to live for Him. And then guess what happens? In time, I got a testimony of, look at where my life is going in a different direction now. The trajectory and aim of my life is different. No matter how nondescript you think your testimony is, those two things will be a part of it. Doctrinal test, what did I call that last one? Transformation test, letter D, the sanctification test. Sanctification test. What's your reaction to sin? When you were non-Christian, you had a different reaction to sin. I don't care if you got saved early. Your reaction to sin, like, like the infant, you go work our nursery. You can watch little tiny kids have a non-Christian reaction to their infractions, and they know it. When you become a Christian, something radically changes. Something changes beyond your conscience, no matter how sensitive your conscience is. You have something that will lead to, let's put it this way, regular repentance. Regular repentance. You can't have repentance without owning it. You can't have repentance without seeing what you've done, calling it wrong, admitting it, thinking on yourself when no one else has seen it. Repentance is that kind of of response to sin that non-Christians don't have. I just picked these two passages. I started with the seven letters to the churches, started with Ephesus and ended with Laodicea, but it's all throughout those letters. But you see those pictures of repentance everywhere. And here are churches, and I know it's a corporate address, but to the corporate church, remember therefore from where you've fallen, Revelation 2:5, and repent and do the works you did at first. That happens on a microcosm in our lives all the time as Christians. You fail, you fall, you see it, you condemn it, you turn, and you live a life of repentance. Revelation 3:19. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Now, that's the promise of God. If you are a Christian, he loves you, and therefore he disciplines you. He reproves you. Therefore, be zealous. And that's what real Christians are. They're zealous to do what? To repent. Be zealous and repent. Regular repentance. I turn. We do declare the turning from sin and a life of independence from God at conversion, but then as we stumble throughout the Christian life and sin, we have regular repentance. That happens in the privacy of our heart. Effects, perhaps, that other people see, but the point is sanctification test starts with our reaction to sin. Then, of course, we talked about this last time, but progress in sanctification, we ought to see increasing obedience in our lives. Is this always a you know straight curved line or is it a jagged line? It, obviously, it's a jagged line. There are issues. But here's my point I'm trying to make, that if God is in you and you have the guarantee and seal of your salvation, well, then God's at work in you. The picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as they were picking their favorite Bible teachers, he says, listen, you got to understand, I may have come and planted... Apollos may have come along as a teacher and watered, but God gave the growth. So neither is the one who plants nor he who waters anything in comparison. There's something, but they're not anything compared to the one who makes them grow. Only God who gives the growth. So the point is you have something organic inside of you that is causing you to move forward in the Christian life. You're not moving forward in the Christian life. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, in the last week or even month. But I mean, in the terms of years and you see that process and pattern... I hate to even put words on it like that because it's different, I suppose, for people, but you're seeing a progress pattern. If that's not happening, then where's God that gives the growth? This this plant must be dead and not bearing fruit. If it is alive, then it's going to be bearing fruit with increasing obedience. God causes that. That's why the picture in the scripture sometimes is just a direct call for people to bear fruit to prove their repentance. Acts 26:20. 20, Paul talking about his testimony among the people. King Agrippa, he's talking to. I declared first to those in Damascus, then those in Jerusalem, those throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God. There's our words: metanoia, astrepho, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul says, get saved, turn from your sin, turn to God, and now start doing things that prove the reality of your repentance. What did I say at the very beginning? The definition, the idea of what this is persevering in our faith is proof of our conversion. It's commanded. And what is it? Deeds, doing things, increasing good works are the sign and the reality of my repentance. Hebrews chapter six, verse nine, talking about cultural Christianity. This is ecclesiastical Christianity, church Christianity, the benefits of being in church. It's those church going non-Christians he's talking about. Then he says this, though we speak in this way, that those who are just church-going Christians are going to end up there in that Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the picture he's painted. He says, though we speak in this way, which is harsh, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What kind of things? You don't think that applies to us? Then why are you harshing us all out with that? Because you need to test yourself to see if you're, if you're of the faith. But, the writer of Hebrews says, I'm confident I'm talking to real Christians. Things that belong to salvation. If you don't have those things, the fruit that responds well to reproof, the increasing obedience, then what's what's wrong? Salvation's not there. Experience in Bible study. You study the Bible? Great. Here's what you should be feeling when you study the Bible. Not in every encounter. It's like the fear of God we talked about this weekend. It's not the uniformed emotional response to God, and neither is conviction in the reading of the Bible, but you ought to have conviction. If you don't have conviction when you read the Bible, something's wrong. You might be in the category that's excluded in this statement, or I guess it's included at in the beginning of this verse, sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person doesn't have the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They bounce off him like bullets off Superman, to use an old phrase, thank you. For they are folly to him, not able to understand him because they are spiritually discerned. Now, they may not be folly in a church-going non-Christian because they don't want to lean back and laugh at the Bible, but they don't penetrate the way they do the real Christian sitting across the table from you who's genuinely converted, reads the Bible, and feels conviction. Because the Bible for Christians who are not natural people. In other words, they have the spirit. They understand the things of the Bible, and the Bible is like this to them. Hebrews 4.12. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces the division of soul and spirit. Does that sound like it feels good? No, not all the time. Joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Conviction. Do you have conviction? How about this? You should have encouragement too. Ought to be times you have something out of that book that non-Christians don't get, something that encourages you. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, speaking of the Bibles, narratives of the Old Testament. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, here it is, that idea. Remember, hope is not cross your fingers, I hope it happens. It's confidence. I can have the confidence and the assurance through the encouragement of the scripture. That's something God is going to grant his real children. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 Into the chapter, since you then have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. So I I got saved through the message of the Bible. Then he gets into chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, we're to long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So the picture is you get saved by the Word, now you're going to crave this thing and you're going to grow up in this salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I know that's steeped in analogy, but you get the picture. I got saved. I tasted to see that God was good. I've embraced the word with truth. Now I'm going to drink and imbibe in the, in the book itself, and I'm going to grow. That sounds encouraging. That sounds fortifying. That sounds strengthening. That's certainly what the Bible's going to do. And if that doesn't do that for you and you're bored, you don't read it, it doesn't convict you, you're not encouraged by it, we've got a problem. You should not have assurance. We got to look back at your gospel and your testimony. You should also gain courage from the scripture. Yeah, great proverb, Proverbs twenty-seven, one. Courage should be a part of the godly person's life. To quote the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Speaking to Christians, now keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you had. For he has said, where do we find that? In the Bible. What did he promise? I'll never leave you and never forsake you. So we can confidently say, now here's the reality of my relationship with the invisible God based on the text of scripture, what he said, and that's a promise. God's in me. I read the Bible. Now I can confidently say what? Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. I'll preach about that this weekend, Lord willing. That's my plan. But all that comes from scripture, conviction, encouragement, and courage. How about your experience in prayer as we run out of time and we go really fast? There should be an experience in prayer that will build your sense of assurance to make it clear that you are a saint that will persevere to the end because you have confidence in your praying. Now, let me quote the passage I already quoted, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and then show you where it goes because I don't want to rip this out of context. I've got to show you the next thing he says, which is about your prayer life. 1 John five thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That sounds great. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. You know, you're a Christian, how's that? That if we ask anything according to his name, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Wow, my prayer life is going to have a sense of confidence when I go to God based on the fact that I know I have eternal life. If that assurance is there, then there's something going on in my experience in prayer that gives me that reality and that hope And by hope, I mean biblical hope, confidence that I am a child of God. Number, letter B, I should say. Increasing clarity. You think, well, I prayed for a lot of things and God didn't do them. Well, in the Christian life, speaking of sanctification in our prayer life, there's going to be increasing clarity, I believe, in your Christian life as you pray because of this phrase. John 14, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You see what I'm emphasizing here? In my name. The prayer of the Christian should be within this sphere of his name, just like the person that's chasing someone and says, stop in the name of the law. You can do that if you're chasing a criminal who's broken the law. You can't go up to a, a hot dog cart on your break as a cop and say, give me a hot dog in the name of the law. It's outside the purview of the law. I can't be praying for things in my Christian life that are outside the purview of the name and the authority and the will of the person I'm asking in the name of. So, Christians learn more about this Christ as they grow, and their Christian prayer life starts to become increasingly clear. They cre- increasingly know more and more of what they ought to pray for, and they do that through an increasing knowledge of the Christ whose name they pray in. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. This is another way to put it. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayers and supplications to that end, keeping alert, perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I that spirit, I know that a lot of people go crazy with that little phrase because it's not defined in context, but if you define it next to and juxtapose it to the idea of the name of God, it has the, same, has the same grammatical interpretation. The idea is I'm praying in the sphere of what the spirit would be for. As I teach in Romans chapter 8, sometimes I'm praying the wrong thing, but the spirit's praying the right thing. As I grow in my Christian life, I start to discern through knowledge of, of truth and of Christ to pray in line with the spirit. And that's what I increasingly do, and all I'm saying is our Experience in prayer is going to be one of confidence to pray, confident to pray boldly to God, and as I go along with increasing clarity, and I will see favorable answers. I should be seeing some answers to my prayer, favorable answers to my prayer, which doesn't always mean he does exactly what I ask, but I'm seeing that in response to my asking, there was something that happened that God clearly favorably responded. That was the promise of 1 John 5. Go back to 1 John 3, 21 and 22. Beloved, if, your heart does not, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. There's the picture of assurance. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So in my growth and bearing fruit, there's an increasing confidence of asking with increasing clarity and favorable answers. And my wife, by the way, is on a streak. You need to ask her to pray for you. You should hear her answered prayers in the last week. Amazing. I say, pray for me, honey. She's like batting 800 this week in her prayer life. Seriously. She, I, I just can't pray for all of you, probably. Sorry to bring that up. I'll be happy with that. Experience in worship. Let's end with this, with one minute overtime. There'll be grateful relief. There should be grateful relief in your worship. Blessed is the man. Asher, Hebrew word, happy, relieved, excited. That's an optimistic good word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, I know I'm a child of God if I my sin is forgiven. So if that's the reality, there's going to be this... Experiential blessing, blessedness, this, this relief, this happiness. He says later in the passage, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. To quote that pilgrim's progress scene, to get that burden, it's lifted off our back. There should be some of that in our worship. That even results in this, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you, an upright heart. Doesn't mean your worship's always going to be super joyful, but there ought to be grateful relief and some tinges, I trust, of real joy in your worship. One more, Psalm 51, 7 through 12. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. If I'm really a Christian, that will be the reality for me, forgiveness. Let me hear joy and gladness. That should be the natural response for forgiveness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What does that do, verse 12? Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There ought to be some kind of experiential relief and joy in our worship because we we sense the forgiveness of our sins.